This week on Geeksplained, in part two of Geektober Gotham Nights, we're taking a deep dive into the black sheep of the Bat family. He's been a Robin, he's been a mob boss, he's been an outlaw. But most know him as Jason Todd, aka the Red Hood. Welcome back to Geeksplained. I'm your host, Eric Kazana, and today's episode is part two of Geektober Gotham Nights, a month-long series where I'm dedicating the entire month of October to the defenders of Gotham City. We're celebrating the release of Gotham Nights and basically taking each week in this month to geeksplain a different member of the Bat family that will be the leads of that game. The first week was Nightwing, Dick Grayson, and this week we're tackling the outlaw himself, Red Hood. We also have, of course, this week's Comics Countdown, where I'll chat you up about all the comics you should be picking up this week, so make sure you stay tuned after the jump for that. But for now, let's roll right on into the main event, the main course, the entree, if you will, as I geeksplain Red Hood. Part 2 of Geektober Gotham Nights puts the spotlight on the man under the red hood. We're talking Jason Todd this week, and it's really interesting, my, my experience with Jason Todd, because I started reading comics right around the time that Hush and Under the Red Hood happened. And I remember reading Hush and not being sure at all who this person was, who seemingly had come back from the dead and had taken Tim Drake hostage but you know you get to, you get context clues and uh the writing at the time in that book did a great job of letting you know oh this was a former robin and he died and when the under the red or the under the hood story happened in the comics uh written by Jed Winnick I was really impressed by it and I kind of fell in love with the Red Hood character you know like you do as a teenager when when and I don't want to say this is like a universal thing but from people that I've spoken to and people in my circle like when you're a teenager like Red Hood is the coolest comic book character uh right up there with characters like Lobo and the Punisher and Red Hood is has gone through a lot I mean obviously Jason Todd 
long-standing comic book character, long-standing uh, comic book tragedy, really, and being able to watch that character grow and change and evolve over the years since he's come back from the dead has been really fascinating. And so this week we're going to be talking all about that, talking about his rise, his fall, his redemption possibly, and his two or three other redemptions as the story goes. Uh, Jason Todd has waffled back and forth between being like an anti-hero and a straight-up villain. And that's something that I really enjoy about the character. I, I like the unpredictability of him. I like that there are a myriad of different stories that you can tell with Jason Todd as a character. And there are lots of stories to tell with that character. I personally think he works better as an antagonist to the Bat family, though I would be lying if I didn't say that there were certain stories, including the one that we're going to be spotlighting today, that really do sell why he needs to be part of the Bat family. So without further ado, let's get into the character profile for Jason Peter Todd, aka Robin, Red Hood, Nightwing, we'll get into that, Red Robin, Hush, Batman, and Wingman. Uh, his first appearance was in Batman number 357 all the way back in 1983, and he was created by Jerry Conway and Don Newton. His team affiliations include the Bat family, Batman Incorporated, Teen Titans, the Outlaws, and the challengers from beyond his powers and abilities include a lazarus enhanced physiology peak physical conditioning he's a master martial artist and a master marksman and his equipment as the red hood include his red hood helmet which depending on what iteration or what story we're telling is either just a regular old helmet or is just as technologically advanced as any gadget in the bat cave uh, his firearms which his favorites seem to be a pair of jericho 941 pistols Body armor, all blades, which is a wild weapon that he really only has in the New 52 uh, Red Hood and the Outlaws, though I wanted to make sure I mentioned it here because somebody would tell me, oh, you didn't mention the All Blades if I didn't include them. And of course, his trusty, his iconic crowbar. Uh, <laughs> the fact that Jason Todd has decided I'm going to reclaim the crowbar as my weapon I think is hilarious. But Let's dive into his history, because Jason Todd has lived a life. Jason Todd has lived two lives, in fact. Uh, his origin, as we will state, uh, as I stated last week and as I will continue to state, we're going to be basing a lot of this off of the post-crisis continuity. There have been tweaks, there have been things here and there. Jason Todd is... Uh, one of the two Robins to have a pre-crisis continuity as well as a post-crisis continuity. But I think the changes are negligible and the fact that pre-crisis Jason is just Dick Grayson again makes going over his pre-crisis continuity really just not worth it. So we're going to be talking post-crisis for Jason along with the little tweaks here and there made by the New 52, made by uh, the Rebirth. There have been different shifts of history as the years have gone on but in all manner of Jason Todd continuity he was born to Phil to Willis and Catherine Todd Willis was a petty crook who abandoned his family fairly early on in Jason's life and his mother Catherine was a drug addict who eventually died of an overdose that left a very small very young child Jason Todd on the streets homeless uh, stealing and trying to make his way in Gotham City on the streets to survive and he 
kind of got a knack for stealing car parts. Stealing car parts, selling them wherever he could, and this brought him to Batman. Because in Crime Alley, one night, Jason stumbled upon the Batmobile, and using his very specific set of skills, managed to take at least one, if not two, depending on the continuity, wheels or hubcaps off of the Batmobile before Batman arrived and captured him for all intents and purposes. He was initially put into a boarding school by Batman, though eventually it was discovered that this boarding school was in fact an academy to breed criminals. It was the opposite of a of a uh, strange academy where instead of they are teaching you about magic, it's teaching you to be a hoodlum. And once this was discovered and Jason was able to escape from said academy, Bruce brought him in and made Jason his newest ward, which means he made Jason the next Robin. Now, Jason's time as Robin is... Not as extensive as a lot of people seem to think. Like, there's this uh, there's this idea that, like, Nightwing was, or Dick Grayson was Robin for a very long time. And then Jason was Robin for a very long time. And then Tim was Robin for a little while. And then Damien was Robin up until the current time. Which is untrue. Jason was basically Robin for six months to a year. That's it. And following this, you know, this step up, this promotion into this new Robin role, Jason Todd had a hard time squaring the circle of trying to be Robin. Because Dick Grayson was known as the jokester of the two. He had a lot of fun, he wore the bright colors, and he was created to not just give the audience, which were mostly children reading Batman at the time, a uh, a, a self-insert into the story, but he was also there to bring some brevity, to bring some light and some fun to Batman. Jason decidedly did not do that. Uh, Jason, as Robin, was known for his anger issues, his mean streak, and the fact that he loved disobeying Bruce in the field. And eventually this all came to a head with a fellow by the name of Felipe Garzanasa, who was a drug dealer, mob boss, pill pusher, uh, human trafficker, all of the terrible things, and a conflict that uh, involved him, you know, coming into uh, coming into conflict with Batman and Robin, ended up with Jason chasing him up to a balcony on the outside of his Gotham City high-rise, and Felipe fell to his death, and it is still unconfirmed as to whether he slipped and fell or whether Jason pushed him. So there is a lot of controversy around that, around the idea of Jason as Robin and whether or not uh, he should ha you know, be portrayed as having this mean streak. Some people think that it's more of a tragedy if Jason is, you know, the happy-go-lucky, you know, Robin with a little bit of an attitude problem who is killed and then falls tragically and becomes the Red Hood, where he's... A lot of people, including, you know, myself, think that having the signs be there of Jason is not Dick, this Robin is markedly different than the original Robin and paves the way for him to turn into the Red Hood, makes it more tragic because 
Jason was taken in by Bruce so that Bruce could steer him away from the life of crime that he knew that Jason was already on the road to. And the fact that he tried to help him and still failed and Jason still ended up as Red Hood is much more, much more tragic to me personally as a storytelling, uh, as a storytelling narrative. And so... Robin continued to cause problems for Bruce. Uh, there were different things here and there. He tried to team up with the Titans, and the Teen Titans said, no thanks, you suck. Uh, he tried to team up with Batgirl, and Batgirl was like, no thanks, hey Bruce, this kid sucks. And it eventually all led to the storyline, A Death in the Family. Uh, Jason found out that his mother Catherine was in fact not his real mother, His real mother was a woman named Sheila, who was currently doing humanitarian work in Ethiopia. Jason followed the paper trail to Ethiopia with Batman in hot pursuit, and there they found that the Joker had been doing some real bad stuff, some real bad international trafficking crimes, and so Batman and Robin had to split their focus because Jason was focused on his mom. Jason was there to reconnect with his mother, and Batman was there to stop Joker. Uh, The two of them didn't exactly see eye to eye on the order of events in which those two uh, missions should be carried out. And so while Batman went to pursue the leads that he had on the Joker, Jason went to his mom and revealed himself as Robin. Unfortunately, Sheila was in a very tough spot and was being blackmailed by the Joker, so she gave up Jason as Robin to the Joker to save her own skin. Which is complicated, it sucks, it's not a, you know, not an ideal situation for anybody, except probably the Joker, who proceeded to beat Jason with a crowbar until he was near dead and then left both he and his mother locked inside of a warehouse with a bomb set to explode. Batman, finding out about the situation secondhand, raced to this warehouse, but unfortunately was just a minute too late, watching as the warehouse blew up in front of him with both Jason and his mother Sheila inside. Now, this brings us to, I think, one of the most publicized uh, stories when it comes to the uh, character of Jason Todd, and that is the phone pole. DC Comics had noted that the fan response to Jason post-crisis was not great. Uh, Jason's shift in attitude and ideology and his relationship with Batman turned off a lot of readers, and they made that displeasure known to DC Editorial. So DC Comics decided, okay, we are going to set up this story, A Death of the Family, and we are going to leave it to you, listener, to you, reader, whether Jason Todd dies or not. They set up two phone numbers, and you would call to whichever number you wanted, whether it was for Jason to live through this ordeal or for him to perish. There's all kinds of stories. There have been stories about one guy calling every day, one guy who set up, you know, a machine to auto-dial the Jason Dies number for, like, six months or so, or however long the period was. But either way, the results were fairly one-sided. There's, I mean, 
there is, I think, a, a something to be said about just how much vote, how many votes there were for each side. But needless to say, the death side won out. And Jason ended up dying in this story. Bruce, wrought with guilt, brought Jason's body back to the States where he was buried in the Wayne estate. Now, we then flash forward decades. Jason Todd stayed dead for a very long time in publication history. Uh, this it, it became kind of a running gag that death is not permanent when it comes to comics unless your name is Uncle Ben, Bucky Barnes, or Jason Todd. And within... I want to say maybe a year or two, two of those names were scratched off the list because during the lead up to the event Infinite Crisis, Superboy Prime, who had been staying with the other uh, remnants of the Infinite Earths post Crisis on Infinite Earths, got bored and got frustrated living in this quote unquote heaven outside of time and space and so he began trying to punch his way through the source wall to get back to the main dc universe and in doing so superboy prime was doing some retcon punching his attacks on the source wall caused a ripple effect throughout the dc universe which caused a bunch of different effects most notably the 27 different origin stories for donna troy and one death being reversed. Jason Todd, following the ripple, the shockwave effect of the retcon punch, dug his way out of his own grave, wandered a mile and a half, and then was found and went into a coma. Jason Todd had no idea who he was. His, you know, his death caused a fair amount of amnesia because Joker bashed the boy's brains in with a crowbar. And so he, even coming out of this coma, he was in a near vegetative state. His body uh, left to kind of wander on its own, though he still had all of the muscle memory of him being Robin, which eventually led to someone spotting him and giving up the sighting to one Talia al Ghul. Now, Talia, daughter of Rachel Ghoul, wanted to get back in the good graces of her beloved, and so she took in the young boy, intent on fixing him and presenting him back to Bruce as a peace offering between the two. Unfortunately, his vegetative state and amnesia state uh, persisted. No matter what they did, no matter how much they tried to fix Jason, there was no going back to the Jason who had been around prior to his death and so talia made a choice and as Raish made his dip into the lazarus pool for however many times in the year talia pushed the vegetative jason into the lazarus pit at the same time now it's unclear how much of an effect Raish's presence in the pool had on Jason, but it's been stated here and there that it may have had something to do with Jason's uh, shift in his perspective coming out of the pit, regardless of how much influence Raish's physiology and whatnot and his spirit had in Jason's revival, Jason rose out of the Lazarus pit in a state of rage. But he was also 
reawakened, given back his cognizance, given back his um, individuality and his autonomy. Jason was smuggled out of the League of Assassins by Talia and given one simple phrase, your death remains unavenged. This kicks off the Lost Days series where uh, Jason trains all around the world going to the exact same places that Bruce went on his uh, pilgrimage to train to become Batman. And after gaining all the knowledge and growing his fighting ability, Jason began to do research and found out that as Talia had stated, Bruce had not gotten revenge for his Robin's death. Joker still lived. And so Jason decided to make a choice. He was going to go back to Gotham City to see this all for himself. Which brings us to the Hush storyline. The seminal Hush storyline that I think everyone and their mother has read or at least has a pretty solid knowledge of. He returned during Hush's war on Batman and everything he holds near and dear to him and struck up a deal with the villain saying that he needed to see something for himself. And during the events of the Hush storyline, uh, Tim Drake is captured by Hush and Bruce follows the trail to Gotham really Wayne Estates where he finds Hush holding Tim hostage near the grave of Jason Todd and as the bandaged mask unravels from Hush it reveals the face of Jason Todd now Bruce fights off Jason and eventually the story is revealed at least in the pages of Hush that this Jason was in fact Clayface however Jason Todd being Robin was not public knowledge at the time and so it's revealed during the uh, Lost Days story that it was, in fact, Jason, at least in the cemetery. The two had a quick hand-to-hand combat before Jason escaped, Batman later catching up with him deeper into Gotham City and it being revealed that Jason was Clayface. However, during the two or in between the two set pieces, Jason and Clayface switched and seeing how badly Batman wanted to protect Tim Drake, unlike in his view how he should have protected him, Jason Todd decided I'm going to burn it all down and that includes my old mentor. Which brings us to Under the Hood, as Jason deciding to play mind games with not just the man who should have saved him, but also the man who killed him. Jason dons the Joker's old Red Hood persona, though now with a much better design, I think, personally, even as a theater kid and loving the theatrics of the original Red Hood uh outfit we'll say uh the biker red hood look looks a lot better and he decided to terrorize the gotham underground bringing together all the mob families and all of the big heavy hitters in gotham delivering the leaders of these mobs the heads of their lieutenants and declaring war not just on them but also on the biggest fish in the pond which was black mask 
Now, the war between Red Hood and Black Mask lasted the entire storyline, also crossed paths with Infinite Crisis and the uh, Secret Society of Supervillains. But ultimately, this revenge tour had one goal in mind, and that was killing the Joker. It kicked things off with him confronting the Joker in his hideout and beating him to death with a crowbar, and then later kidnapping the Joker once again and holding him at gunpoint, telling Batman that once Batman had deduced his identity, that it was going to be either him or the Joker. He had to choose. Either he would need to kill Jason to stop him from killing the Joker, or he was going to let Jason kill the Joker. Batman, of course, seeing a third path, is able to disarm Jason, and Jason is able to escape with a brand new status quo set up for Batman and Jason's relationship. Jason then made his way to Titan's Tower, where he saw that of all the people who had ever been on the Titans, who have ever been related to the Titans, to get memorial statues in Titan's Tower... Jason was not one of them. And as Tim Drake arrived at Titan's Tower, as the only person there in Titan's Tower, Jason ripped off his Red Hood costume to reveal a a patchwork version of his old Robin costume, fought Tim to a standstill before eventually overwhelming the younger Robin. However, this fight did earn... Uh, earned him Jason's respect. Jason then decided to head out and try and find his way in the world. One year after the Infinite Crisis event, he seemed to have found his place, and his place was in New York City, the city of dreams. And he found his new dream, which was to be Nightwing, falling in the steps of his former older brother figure he was terrorizing the underground of new york city as a knife wielding nightwing and ran into the original nightwing who had just come back from his inactivity for the last 52 weeks and the two of them clashed over their ideologies over how to meet out justice and eventually the two of them grew to a mutual understanding with jason leaving the Nightwing role behind and leaving Dick Grayson as the one and only Nightwing. After this, Jason made his way and had a couple run-ins, one specifically with Green Arrow and his current Speedy at the time, Mia Dearden. Jason wanted to recruit Mia to be his Robin. And uh, stick a pin in that for later. That's a special tool that we will come back to. But eventually it was revealed that he just wanted Mia because he saw a lot of himself and his background in Mia and was trying to poach Mia from Green Arrow. The two clashed. Uh, It was revealed that he wanted her just to basically further his own gains. And so Mia declined the offer and returned to Green Arrow. 
which brings us to the countdown to final crisis countdown is a special event because countdown to infinite crisis was very well received it had a great uh lead up it felt focused and every single piece of countdown to infinite crisis mattered countdown to final crisis did not there was a lot of mess when it came to countdown to final crisis and unfortunately uh there was i would say probably like a 30 70 split between stuff that was important to final crisis and stuff that was absolutely not thankfully Countdown to Final Crisis featuring the Challengers of Beyond was absolutely worth it to read because this brought three unlikely heroes together, including Jason Todd, Donna Troy, and Ryan Choi. So the three of them, after being briefed by Ryan Choi that Ray Palmer had gone missing in the brand new multiverse decided they were going to launch a rescue mission into the multiverse and the three decided to try and find ray palmer however halfway through the uh the events we started to see a possible romance brewing between jason and donna with ryan kind of being their fun geeky science uh science third wheel they managed to make their way through several different earths before ryan was unfortunately called back to the prime earth but he left them with a pretty good substitute that being green lantern kyle rayner who was an old flame of donna's which made this very complicated but gave me some delicious uh kyle rayner and jason todd rivalry content that series, the three of them palling around, incredibly underrated. People do not talk about it enough. They really, really don't. Uh, lots of friction between Kyle and Jason. Donna trying to keep watch of them while also trying to continue their mission, which eventually brought them to Earth-51, which was a bit of a wake-up call for Jason Todd. When they arrived to this Earth, they found that Batman had never gotten another Robin after Jason and had, in fact, mourned him to the point of him making an entire, you know, Robin shrine, including a brand new costume that would give him the role of Red Robin. Jason took on the role and got to live out his fantasy as being Batman's Robin once again until this Batman was killed by one of the many monitors that served as the antagonists of this countdown series. Jason decided to keep the Red Robin costume and continue to fight on in the name of this Earth-51 Batman, and in the events of Final Crisis, fought on the side of good all the way up till the conclusion. However, following this, uh, Jason would abandon the Red Robin identity wanting to continue his role as the red hood and then we got some uh, some issues because this leaving the costume just in any random dumpster ended up not being a great idea and a great plan for jason because jason was eventually contacted by tim who after seeing jason in the red robin costume here and there during the battle of final crisis wanted to know why he was around killing people 
and Jason and Tim decided to team up to try to find out the identity of this new Red Robin, which ended up being a character called Ulysses Armstrong, who has been known as the General, who's been known as a bunch of different things, and is a pretty... I would say fairly primary uh, Tim Drake antagonist. Uh, the two of them ended up defeating uh, Ulysses Armstrong, taking the Red Robin identity back and saving it for later. However, uh, this led right into the last will and testament of Bruce Wayne uh, storyline, where following the events of Batman R.I.P. and Final Crisis, Bruce Wayne was assumed dead. And he had been seemingly killed by Darkseid, though as we would later come to find out, he was just sent back in time. This was a hard time for the entire Bat family. And each of the original Robins was given a video message from Bruce as his last will and testament. And this uh, message that Bruce had for Jason, which was more or less, I'm sorry I failed you, do not be alone, because you cannot do this by yourself did not have the intended effect on Jason. It was meant to give him the strength and the resolve to team up with the rest of the Bat family and just ended up driving him further away. And when the Battle for the Cowl event transpired, we saw the negative impact of Bruce's message for Jason because there started to begin inklings of rumors that Batman had returned to Gotham. Except he seemed a little different seemed a little different he was uh, a little bit more violent a little bit angrier which i mean is not exactly a completely alien concept to batman but what was an alien concept to batman was that he was running around shooting people killing criminals in cold blood always leaving a calling card behind that would simply state i am batman it was eventually revealed that this gun-toting Batman was, in fact, Jason Todd. And during the events of the story, he clashed with every single member of the Bat family, taking out the little squirt known as Damien, nearly killing Tim Drake, who had himself donned an old-school Batman costume, that of the Neil Adams design. And eventually, everything led to a final confrontation between this gun-toting uh, Jason Bat and Nightwing, the immovable force meeting the uh, uns or the unstoppable force meeting the immovable object. The two of them clashed with eventually Jason revealing that he was too far gone, that there was no redeeming him. And during the climax of the battle, seemingly fell to his death, giving Dick Grayson the stage to become the new Batman. However, this was not the end of Jason's story. No, 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 no. He has died once before, and he always comes back. He's like Captain Boomerang in that way. Maybe that's why I like him so much. Uh, the Red Hood reappeared in Gotham during the early days of Jason, or of uh, Dick's career as Batman, who had taken on Damien as his Robin and sent Tim Drake on his way as the new Red Robin. Uh, this Red Hood sported a design closer to the, well, his helmet at least, closer to the original Red Hood, and also had this really, I actually kind of like, uh, very heroic looking design. He had taken on a sidekick named Scarlet, who had survived the Professor Pig arc of the uh, Batman and Robin Reborn story. If you want more information on that story, I did a whole episode on it back in August for my birthday, so go check that out. Uh, this... 
of course, brought this new dynamic duo into conflict with the current dynamic duo because Red Hood and Scarlet believed in capital punishment and their whole slogan was let the punishment fit the crime. And so if people killed, they would die. If people mutilated, they would be mutilated. If people ate people, well, I think you see where this is going. Uh, The two clashed with Batman and Robin numerous times until their meddling in in Gotham's underworld brought to them in the brought them into the attention of a mercenary known as Flamingo. Now Flamingo is a character that I would love to see more of. I think uh, Flamingo is an interesting case in a Grant Morrison creation that I don't think was appreciated at the time. And Flamingo is this prince-inspired mercenary that absolutely demolishes Red Hood and Scarlet. It's actually kind of sad to watch them be so easily dismantled by Flamingo. And it's only through them teaming up with Batman and Robin that Flamingo is able to be defeated. And following this, Scarlet abandons Red Hood, seeing his ideology as flawed and him as just trying to outdo Dick instead of actually trying to make a difference, leaving Jason Todd to be incarcerated for the first time since his return as the Red Hood. Uh, During this point, it was uh, revealed, I guess, as a retcon that Jason had indeed uh, had red hair as per his pre-crisis origin Uh, but was forced to dye it to look more like Dick Grayson. I like that idea. I know it's not everyone's cup of tea, but I like the idea of Jason being a redhead and him having to dye his hair and all that stuff. Uh, Jason also went through a serious glow-up in prison, growing his hair out long, becoming this giant muscle-bound man, and eventually was freed to become Red Hood once again as Scarlet, after taking some time and one, you know, missing her partnership with Jason, broke the Red Hood out of prison, and the two of them continued their escapades. Unfortunately, their escapades were very short-lived because the new 52 hit comics as the DC Universe was rebooted yet again, though this time a harder reboot than following the Crisis on Infinite Earths. And this led into some big old retcons for Jason Todd as a character. Uh, It was revealed that his entire origin as a street urchin, as the son of Willis and still strangely Catherine, though it had been revealed either way, uh, had been the entire machinations of the Joker, who was building Jason for a purpose that still has not been revealed. Uh, They also cleaned up a little bit of his... Uh, of his transition from Robin into Red Hood. Instead of the retcon punch reviving him, Talia captured his body following his death and dipped his dead body into the Lazarus pit to revive him, lining it up more with the critically acclaimed Batman under the Red Hood animated film. And also adding in a little thing called the all-cast, which is not great. Uh, The all-cast is this subdivision of the League of Assassins that are like super religious and very uh, zealot uh, very zealous to their own cause and their own beliefs which makes them kind of the more uh, radical version of the League of Assassins 
Jason trained under the all cast to become Red Hood instead of going around the world. And as the New 52 kicks off, we find ourselves in the first iteration of Red Hood and the Outlaws, which featured Jason teaming up with Arsenal, a.k.a. Roy Harper, and Starfire, a.k.a. Princess Coriander of Tamaran. This story is not great. Um, It was bordering on character assassination for the character of Starfire. And even though Jason and Roy had instant chemistry, and I love the two as a pairing, uh, the story just didn't work. The all cast was this brand new creation that was set up to be the, uh, I don't even know how to, how to describe it. It's, it's kind of set up to be his, tribe before they were all massacred by a group called the Untitled. The Untitled eventually being revealed to be led by Rachel Ghoul, and then he was brought back into the League, and it was just messy. It was just messy. Not a great story. Good art. Not a great story. Thankfully, Jason was featured as part of some good stories in the Batman Incorporated book, where following the events of literally everything that happened to him that we just spoke about taking place in a five-year span. A five-year... I'm not going to talk about it. Not going to go over it. Not going to do it. Um, Jason ended up joining Batman Incorporated, a worldwide network of heroes inspired by Batman to help save the world. He joined Batman Incorporated undercover in the role of wingman taking on damian wayne as redbird and as the two you know got to be partners they became close they bonded they had a great friendship which made everything the more unfortunate when the end of batman incorporated saw the death of damian at the hands of the heretic Following the events of this, uh, Jason gave up the wingman role, returned to his role as Red Hood, and kind of spiraled for a little bit before he was recruited by Batman alongside Tim Drake and Barbara Gordon to head to the planet of Apocalypse to try and rescue the body of the recently deceased Damian Wayne. This story, Robin Rises, is a fantastic Bat family story and features... uh, Jason, Barbara, and Tim all sporting Robin armor, which I think is really freaking cool and just looks awesome. Uh, The battle was won and Damien's body was returned to Bruce. However, it wasn't just his body. Damien had been revived with a little bit of superpowers for a short amount of time following his rebirth. Uh, Following this Jason returned to feuding with the League of Assassins, uh, which led into the Batman and Robin Eternal story, bringing him back to Gotham to deal with potentially some real bad stuff with a character called Mother. Uh, And that led directly into the story Robin War, where the We Are Robin book clashed with Tim, Jason, Damien, and a secretly dead but secretly alive Dick Grayson. Uh, This led into the rebirth of the DC Universe and part two, the electric boogaloo of Red Hood and the Outlaws. The superior Red Hood and the Outlaws. Don't let anyone ever tell you different. This roster featured Jason teaming up with Artemis of Themyscira and Bizarro and was a 
an underappreciated hit during the Rebirth era. This, it just ruled. It was a really, really good time. I enjoyed this run. Uh, this was actually this is actually probably my favorite Jason Todd focused story, where the three of them bond over being the redheaded stepchildren of each of their respective families in the Trinity. Unfortunately, the team was not built to last. Uh, Artemis and Bizarro got stranded in another dimension, and Jason, believing that they were dead, became a solo act with the Red Hood and the Outlaws book being rebranded just to Red Hood Outlaw, striking it out on his own and returning to Gotham City to deal with some unresolved anger, which I think is pretty much the mission statement for Jason Todd. However, the uh, the connections he had made in his previous Outlaws group did unfortunately come back to the surface as Jason was apprised of the tragic events of Sanctuary and Heroes in Crisis, where Roy did meet his end, unfortunately, during the event. This, again, sent Jason into a spiral with his allies being picked off seemingly one by one, sending him into a blind rage and forcing him to shift his singular focus onto Oswald Cobblepot, who he dethroned and replaced in his criminal empire, becoming the Prince of Gotham and coming into direct conflict with Batman. During his stint as the Prince of Gotham, the Leviathan event happened where he was accused of a whole lot of things, mostly, though, of being the leader of Leviathan. Jason, not wanting to deal with any of this, ran, and it pretty much severed anything that was left of the relationship that he had left with Bruce, though it was eventually revealed that Jason was framed and was used as a scapegoat. This led to Jason uh, being recruited for the Generation Outlaws storyline where he was tasked with teaching a whole brand new crop of young vigilantes to be outlaws just like him. However, it was revealed later on that this was just like his original origin with the Criminal Academy and Jason was forced to end the Generation Outlaws project, leaving him alone once again. This caused him to return to Gotham City one last time during the events of Joker War, where he mostly just kind of kept on the peripheral of everything, helping out the Bat family where he could, but not really getting as involved as he probably could have during the event. Following this, Jason had a run-in with Batman, which we will get to in just a second, and everything kind of popped off again. Everything seemed to be going well with Jason and Batman until the events of A-Day, when a chemical attack on Arkham Asylum resulted in the deaths of almost all of Batman's rogues gallery. And Jason, though not being involved, saw this as a net positive However, this event did come back to bite him when he was recruited to be part of a specialized strike force called Task 
Force Z. Which brings us to the modern day, brings you up to date, and brings you right to where you should be reading with Jason Todd. And I mentioned it just a second ago, the spotlight book that I would like you to read this week is the urban legend story Red Hood and Batman Cheer. This ran through the first six issues of the Batman Urban Legends anthology series, and it is written by Chip Zdarsky with art by Eddie Barrows, Marcus Toe, Eber Ferreira, and Diogenes Neves. I am so sorry if I pronounced the name, those names incorrectly, but... First of all, this was Chip Zdarsky's first big toe dip into the DC universe. I would say this was the uh, the trial run of him before he was given the role of Batman writer. Obviously, he wrote other stories, but this is what I think sold DC Comics on him. The art is fantastic. Eddie Barrows is one of my favorite artists working today. He's incredible. And the flashbacks showing uh, Jason during his early days as Robin are handled by Marcus Toe, who I absolutely love and is killing it over on Shang-Chi. Uh, this story involves Jason and Batman separately. Uh, tracking down the supplier for this new drug called Cheer Drops, which seemed to have the opposite effect of the Scarecrow's fear toxin giving the user complete euphoria. Not that kind, not the HBO kind, but actual euphoria with their greatest hopes, their greatest dreams uh, being presented to them in hallucinogenic fashion. Unfortunately, this causes the user's manic episodes, uh, causes them to be lost in their hallucinations, and it's just bad all around. Eventually, Jason runs afoul of one of the dealers, and after finding out that this dealer's child, Tyler, is left at home and this dealer could not give a shit about him or his mother who overdosed on the cheer drops, Jason kills the, the drug pusher. Which is not good, because he killed a man in Batman City after having the tentative agreement with Batman that Jason could do whatever he wants outside of the city, but inside city limits, death is off the board. And this story spirals into this character study on not just Jason Todd, but also the relationship that he has with Bruce. And by the end of the story, you really get a sense that the two have come to, if not, you know, if not a good place, an understanding of sorts. They know that the relationship is not going to repair itself overnight, but they do know that it can be repaired, which is just as important. And so at the end of the story, uh, Jason is gifted with a brand new Red Hood set as he swears to Batman that he's giving up guns. And this is what gives us the current Red Hood costume, which is basically a gray battle armor with a red Batman symbol and his Red Hood helmet. Uh, and him wielding the crowbar as his main weapon, which I still think is hilarious. But it also gives a great little uh, character study on Batman as well. Uh, there's this moment where he is, you know, forced to take the cheer drop drug. And what he sees as his best case scenario, I'm not going to spoil it, but it is haunting. So I would definitely recommend checking that out. It's the book that I think right now fits so well into what Jason is trying to do because in the upcoming game Gotham Knights which we are dedicating the entire month to celebrating Jason is or Jason seems to be at that place where he's not sure where he stands with the rest of the Bat family and it's only through a 
maybe not in the comics posthumous, but in a tentative understanding and a message with uh, with Batman that he is able to kind of get that closure and rejoin the other members of the Bat family to become the Gotham Knights. It's also a story that focuses heavily on Jason's trauma, as well as the idea that the darkness in Jason has always been there, and the I think the point of the character is fighting against that, to show that no matter what your circumstances, you can overcome the darkness inside you. I think it's a perfect story for Jason, and it's a perfect story for new readers to Jason. It's a perfect story for veterans of Jason's character. You will find something new about Jason in this story, even if you've read the character and followed him since his return. I know I did. So that's the story that I think you should absolutely read before playing Gotham Knights, whether you're playing as Red Hood or any of the other members of the Bat family. And if you want some additional reading that you can uh, check out alongside Urban Legends, Red Hood and Batman Cheer, I recommend, of course, Under the Red Hood and Lost Days, uh, recounting not just his revival, but his first campaign back in Gotham. Uh, Deceased Unkillables is also a great Jason Todd story that focuses on the ground level of the the first deceased event. It's a side story that takes place slightly... After everything that's been happening, you see Jason reacting to things after the fact that happen in the main Deceased story. Great little uh, side story for the Deceased universe. Would recommend. I'd also recommend, honestly, Red Hood and the Outlaws Rebirth. The, the pairing of Jason with Artemis and Bizarro is something that on paper should not work, but in practice absolutely does. The art is stellar. The writing is fantastic. And I have never ever rooted for a love interest for Jason Todd like I have with him and Artemis. So I would recommend it. It is amazing. And the last one is the current book that you can read. It's Task Force Z. Task Force Z actually just wrapped up, just dropped issue 12. So you can go back and check out the entire series in full to find out what Jason is doing and what exactly is Task Force Z. So those are the books I think you should check out. And honestly, I'm excited for Red Hood to pop up in Gotham Knights. It's not, you know, he's not going to be a character that I main. I don't think I've already stated it's going to be Nightwing, of course. Though, I will be playing substantially as Tim Drake with that new sweet Jim Lee designed not Jim Lee designed, Jim Lee, we'll say redesigned, Rebirth costume. But Jason Todd doesn't have a whole lot of playable uh, appearances in video games. He popped up uh, a little bit in Arkham Knight, and he was a playable character in Injustice 2. But beyond that, and maybe the Lego Batman games, he's not really a character that gets a lot of, you know, unique play, which I think, you know, you could probably say about the entire Bat family, and especially the four that are featured in Gotham Knights. So I'm excited to get some time with him. The strange air jumping thing, I don't think I'm going to get used to. But I am excited to not just get him in gameplay. I'm excited to see him in practice. He's ugly as sin in the uh, in the game. Let's not mince words on that. His character model is not great. But 
His costumes look really fun, and I'm excited to see him interact with the other members of the Bat family, of the other members of the Gotham Knights. Uh, because Jason is a very polarizing figure, both in and out of the comics, whether it's in-universe or when it comes to his association with the audience. But either way, I think when you talk about Jason Todd, he's not just the gun-toting black sheep of the Bat family. He's got a lot of complexity, and he's got a lot of potential to do good. And to see it, all you have to do is look under the hood. Welcome back to this week's Comics Countdown. This is the segment of our show where I'll chat you up about all the comics you should be picking up this week, whether it's at your local comic book shop, a comicsology, or however you get your comics. These are the ones I think you should definitely take a look at. But first, before we get into this week's books, we got to take a look back at last week's books for the Geeksplain Pick of the Week of last week. And the moment I finished this comic, I knew it was the Pick of the Week. It's Gotham City Year one number one written by tom king art by phil hester um this comic it was made just for me um set in the city of gotham prior to it falling to ruin uh it's a detective noir story with slam bradley uh it's it's exactly what the doctor ordered i absolutely adored it if you're a fan of detective noir like i am this is going to be one that you are going to want to get in on the ground level of so make sure you pick it up but that's last week this week we've got 10 comic books for you to check out so let's kick things off with a quadruple feature of judgment day tie-ins starting off with immortal x-men number seven this is written by kieran gillen with art by lucas werneck and, uh, I mean, Immortal X-Men prior to the Judgment Day event was getting very, very good. And during the Judgment Day event, it's been putting spotlights on characters that I wasn't, you know, super obsessed with. So I've been really enjoying Immortal X-Men this whole time. And it looks like this is going to be no different. So let's go ahead and dive into the synopsis. A serious Bamf. Even if you're the heart of the X-Men, there are days you want to tear out people's hearts. Judgment Day is one of them. What extreme steps will Nightcrawler take in the name of the Spark? So, yeah, Nightcrawler's about to uh, do some damage, and I'm very, very excited about that. Next up, we have Judgment Day Iron Fist, number one. This is written by Alyssa Wong with art by Michael YG. And this one I was really surprised when uh, it was announced and when we finished up the most recent Iron Fist book that they were like, all right, continue Lin Lee's adventures in Judgment Day Iron Fist because at present, this Iron Fist doesn't really have anything to do with any of the involved parties. So I'm very curious to see how this does get involved or if like the uh, the story focused or actual important tie-ins have said, this is going to be a non-story critical tie-in. Let's go ahead and dive into the synopsis. Iron Fist faces his greatest challenge. After the clash between Lin Yi and his brother Lin Feng, Lin Yi, the current Iron Fist, protector of the mystical city of Kunlun, must reclaim access to Kunlun. But not before he faces a trial unlike any other. Shao Lao the Undying. Wait, 
What does Loki have to do with all this? Find out when Iron Fist and Loki face judgment. So yeah, it was revealed at the end of the Iron Fist book that Loki was kind of going to get involved. I'm not sure what to the extent he's going to get involved, but it does seem like the two of them are going to clash in this, so it should be very interesting. Next up, we have Death to the Mutants number three. This is written by Kieran Gillen with art by Gu Villanova. And... I mean, Death to the Mutants has been fantastic. It's been teaming up the mutants with the, um, oh, what are they called? The Deviants. And it's been very interesting getting almost a battle, like a, uh, what, what was it? Like War Zones style tie-in, like the old uh, Secret Wars and Civil War stuff. Um, getting tie-ins like that where it's showing just kind of the other battles that are happening around I think is really useful to show the scope of an event and there have been some quote-unquote story critical stuff in here as well so I've been enjoying it I do believe this is the last death to the mutants so we'll see how they wrap this whole side story up let's dive into the synopsis it looks like the end of the world the world is taking it personally the machine that is Earth is having a very bad day. Yeah, I mean, it's vague as hell, but we do know that throughout this Judgment Day event, the Earth has been giving us narration, which I think is very interesting. So we will just have to see how that shakes out and if that ends up coming to light or giving us some answers in this issue and then finally for our judgment day tie-ins this week we have judgment day eternals number one this is written by kieran gillen with art by pasquale ferry and uh, this is the third and final story critical axe one shot they did it i told them not to they did it anyway uh, you gotta in the future just as an aside, when you have an event, I recognize that not everyone's going to read all of the tie-ins. I absolutely get that. But if you're not going to have tie-ins that impact the story or are referenced in the main book, then you don't really need to do the tie-ins, do you? So that's just my two cents. Um, when it comes down to it, a lot of the other tie-ins, like perfect example the spider-man book good story not really necessary and it came smack dab in the middle of everything else going on uh which kind of disrupted the rhythm of that book i think having two two issues back to back that are both tie-ins to separate events months apart from each other doesn't really it's, it's just not it's not kosher it's not good stuff so in the future i would like to see if you're going to have a tie-in and i know i'm just I'm an old man shouting at a cloud. I'm speaking into the wind. Uh, make all the tie-ins story critical. That way, maybe we'll we'll pick them all up. I don't know. Anyway, with that aside, let's do this. Uh, let's do the synopsis. Ajak has come a long way. She's met her maker. Hell, she's made her maker. Now, can she or anyone survive her maker? Big questions. I will be completely honest with you. I have not read the uh, Eternals book prior to this, but all of this, this event has gotten me very intrigued and interested in catching up on that book, which I think events like this are built to do. So I will be catching up on this 
as you know uh, my prequel reading to the Judgment Day event and I'm interested to learn more about Ajax as well. Next up, we're diving into another big event tie-in on the DC side of things with Dark Crisis Worlds Without a Justice League Green Arrow number one, or Dark Crisis on Infinite Earth Worlds Without a Justice League Green Arrow number one. This is written by Dennis Culver and Stephanie Phillips with art by Clayton Henry. And I have been waiting for this one in particular, because you know how much I love me some Green Arrow and Black Canary. Let's dive into the synopsis. When Pariah and his forces of the Great Darkness laid waste to the most powerful superheroes of all time, all hope was lost. Until now. To power his weapons of war, Pariah has captured each member of the Justice League and trapped them on worlds suited to their every dream and desire, while the planets themselves slowly eat away at their respective inhabitants. When the Justice League went toe-to-toe with Pariah's Dark Army, Green Arrow was fatally wounded by Doomsday. So how did he wake up on a world tailored to his every desire? And what dark bargain has Black Canary made to will these worlds into existence? Where there's life, there's hope, and with that hope comes a deeper unraveling of the tapestry of the DCU's biggest event of 2022. So that's teasing some interesting stuff. Uh, I would be interested to find out if Black Canary was the one who maybe posited the whole parallel Earths trapping the Justice League there to see where that goes, just to save Oliver. Um, Very, very interested to pick this up. Next up, we have Daredevil number four, written by Chip Zdarsky with art by Rafael Delator. Y'all enjoy that Daredevil cameo, that Daredevil guest appearance in She-Hulk. I know I did. I was stoked. It was great. Uh, This book has been fantastic. Uh, We are still early days when it comes to the overarching plot for part two of Chip Zdarsky's Daredevil run. But they are building the fist. They are getting ready. They are amassing their forces to take on the hand. And I am still on board, still really enjoying it. So let's go ahead and dive into the synopsis. A Perilous Trek. For months, Electra Nachios has been developing a plan to save the world from the violent and ruthless hand by rebuilding its opposite equal, the Fist. And with the world at large believing he's dead, Matt Murdock has become her tros- his m- her most trusted ally. But Electra needs more than just an ally. She needs a partner. And in this issue, Matt and Electra will grow closer than ever before. Not sure what that means, but I guess we will find out. I'm also, I mean, the opposite of the hand is the foot, right? Well, just let's just be honest. This would be the time to bring in the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles and have the Foot Clan fight the hand. But in the absence of that, much superior story. Uh, I like the concept of the fist. I like that they have to build up their ranks, try and recruit other heroes, most of which will probably say no, so they'll have to turn to less savory folks. And I'm curious to see how far down the rabbit hole Matt is willing to go before he starts compromising his ideals and his morals. This is going to be very, very interesting. Next up, speaking of interesting, we've got Superman, Son of Kal-El, number 16, written by Tom Taylor with art by Sian Tormi. This is part two of The Return of Kal-El, and this is going to bring our two Supermen together for the first time since Clark left to go liberate War World. I am curious to see what the status quo is going to be coming out of this, because we had New York Comic Con, and there's some 
stuff going on, lots of questions in the air. So I'm hoping we get some answers or at least get a step towards finding out what those answers are here. Let's go ahead and dive into the synopsis. Kalel Returns, Part 2. Father and son are at last reunited after the War World Saga ripped them apart. And you don't need to have super senses to know that this is a reunion well earned. As planet Earth becomes reacquainted with the rise of two supermen, one man stands in their way. Lex Luthor sets his deadly machinations in motion as the march toward Action Comics 1050 continues. So yeah, we are very quickly approaching Action Comics number 1050. Uh, we just had 1047, and the journey will continue in 1048. But this is going to be a quote-unquote story-critical part of that uh, that whole arc, so definitely pick this up. Next up, we have The Amazing Spider-Man, number 11. This is written by Zeb Wells with art by John Romita Jr., and this is the kickoff to a brand new arc. Very excited to continue this book, uh, continue the main thrust of this book. So let's go ahead and dive into the synopsis. The Return of the Hobgoblin. The timing of this goblin's return with Peter working at Oscorp must be a coincidence, right? But who is donning the yellow cowl? Roger Kingsley? Ned Leeds? Flash Thompson? If you know anything about Hobgoblin, you know that you know nothing about Hobgoblin. I love that. I love that synopsis. Flash Thompson's an odd choice to throw in there, uh, considering everything that's been going on with him. So keep your eyes out on that. But I was asked this past week why I enjoy this book, and I covered it a little bit on as a response on Twitter. But I really, I'm liking the flavor of this book because, as I said on Twitter, it's bringing him back down to street level. His first arc is against the mob, and you know how much I love Spider-Man versus the mob, but it's also referencing a lot of Spider-Man's history. Yes, something happened. The greater mystery of what happened, I think, is one of the main, you know, cruxes of this book. Why are Peter and MJ separated again after they just got back together? What happened? What did Peter do in the opening pages of, or really the opening panels of this run? We don't know. I'm a sucker for a mystery, but I have been enjoying the back-to-basics approach that it seems to be going on with Peter. And this is a prime example of that. We're back to basics. We're back to the stuff that worked for him throughout, you know, the Silver Age of Spider-Man comics. And the Hobgoblin is one of my favorite Spider-Man rogues right alongside Tombstone. So they're using my favorite rogues of Spidey's. They're bringing him back down to a basics approach, not making him this gigantic worldwide superhero, keeping the scope of his stories fairly small. And I enjoy that. I enjoy that in my Spider-Man. If you want a more you know, universe and multiverse threatening Spider-Man story. Dan Slott and Mark Bagley kicked off a fantastic uh, end of the Spider-Verse event with their Spider-Man number one last week, which was really, really good. So that you're getting the best of both, I think. So either way, whatever Spider-Man story you would rather be reading, there's a book for both of those tastes now. So I enjoy both. I enjoy this a lot. So I have been really liking it and I will be continuing to pick up this book. Next up, we have 
Batman vs. Robin number two. This is written by Mark Wade with art by Mahmoud Azrar. I really enjoyed Batman vs. Robin number one. Uh, as we kind of already knew, the devil Neza is involved. Robin may have made a deal with the devil. Uh, we don't know exactly what's going on. We know that the entire DC universe is threatened. It's magic community most of all. So I am very curious, especially now that we have the announcement of Mark Wade's stuff that he's going to be helming post all this. I'm curious what longing and lasting effect, if any, this book is going to have on the DCU. So let's go ahead and dive into the synopsis. House of Secrets, House of Death. In the wake of Damian Wayne's devastating attack on the Batcave, Bruce and Alfred are on the run and running out of time. Magic users across the planet are experiencing dangerous and deadly power flares, and Batman must solve this mystery before his friends and allies are turned to ash. To crack this case, the Dark Knight is going to need the help of one of the greatest masters of the magic arts on the planet, Zatanna. What awaits our ragtag group of heroes in the House of Secrets? Can Damien break free of Neza's possession spell before he murders, murders his own father? All this and more in the explosive second chapter of Batman vs. Robin. If you read the first issue of Batman vs. Robin, you know that Satana is in a very curious place. So I'm not sure exactly how she's going to... Um, how she's going to be involved or what impact she's going to make on this story. But putting Zatanna front and center is always a good idea in my book. So I'm looking forward to this. But the big book of the week, the book I think you should absolutely be picking up is, to the surprise of no one, Do a Powerbomb number five. This is by Daniel Warren Johnson and Mike Spicer. And this book is perfection when it comes to comic book storytelling, especially in the world of professional wrestling. I've said it before, I will continue to say it. this book was made especially for me, and with a book like this and a book like Gotham City Year One on the shelves right now, it is a very good time to be Eric right now. <laughs> it is a very good time to be me as a comic book fan, so let's go ahead and dive into the synopsis. FISO have made it clear. They think they're better than every other wrestler in the Death Life tournament. But are they ready for an anything-goes deathmatch? Sun and Steel bring the barbed wire to a final like no other. Yeah, I am super stoked about this. The cliffhanger, the ending of issue four was, it popped me. Popped me huge, and I'm ready for this ladder deathmatch barbed wire exploding match they're going to be having here this is going to be incredible i cannot wait to pick this book up this is a perfect comic book but that does it for this week's comics countdown to recap we have immortal x-men number seven judgment day iron fist number one judgment day death to the mutants number three and judgment day eternals number one dark crisis worlds without a justice league green arrow number one daredevil number four superman son of kal-el number 16 the amazing spider-man number 11 batman versus robin number two and do a powerbomb number five october is knocking it out of the park so far this is going to be a great month of comics 
And that is going to bring us to the wrap-up. If this is your first time joining us on the Explain podcast and you like what I do here, feel free to subscribe to us on the podcasting platform of your choice and give us a rating and review. We drop new episodes every single Wednesday, and honestly, ratings, reviews, and especially subscriptions really do help me out and really helps the podcast out in this weird podcasting algorithm space, raises up our stock and gets us out and into the orbit of listeners just like you. And if you give us a five-star rating and review on Apple Podcasts, iTunes, whatever you want to call it, I will read your review here live on the podcast. You can write literally anything you want. I will be forced to read it. As long as you give me those five stars, I mean, the sky's the limit. And you'll be able to join the likes of our Red 13, including Seafire ND, Joshua Panels to Pixels, Matt Draper, Burrito Man 88, Doug from For Every Kind of Geek, Don Swanson, That Guy Brian, Mouth Dork, Dallas Meeks, Amazing Spider Fan, A Lock and AZ, Sass, and Jedi Jesse 20. Want to say a huge thank you to these fine folks for their reviews, and I cannot wait to hear yours. If you want to be part of our Geeksplain mailbag, send your emails to geeksplained at gmail.com and put mailbag in the subject header, and I will read them here on the show. If you want to keep up, up to date with the podcast participate in polls that decide future episodes or maybe you just want to shoot the shit with me on the latest geeky news you can follow us on instagram and twitter at geeksplained pod that's at geeksplained pod we ran a twitter poll recently that got some really good engagement had a ton of fun and it decided the direction for a future episode so if you want to have a hand in that or if you want to just be able to geek out with me on all the happenings that are happening in the world of geek culture that that is the place to do it. Finally, on Fridays, every single Friday, it is the Geeksplained Book Club, where I, alongside my amazing friends, are going through every single issue of every single volume of Brian Michael Bendis's Ultimate Spider-Man. Last week, we wrapped up the Peter Parker saga with Death of Spider-Man Fallout, and this week, it's a brand new era in Ultimate Comics. Miles Morales is taking the stage and will be the main character in Ultimate Comics Spider-Man going forward, and I cannot wait to continue on this journey with all of you. So make sure you tune into that. Spidey Fridays are a thing, so make sure you be there or be square, not a circle. But that is going to do it for this week's episode. Thank you so much for listening listening so far. Uh, this has been great, diving into the Bat family, diving into, I guess, the flag bearers of the Bat family. The Bat family is huge, and unfortunately, there aren't enough weeks in October for me to cover all of them, but if you're interested in me covering other members of the Bat family, feel free to let me know, whether it's through social media or through email. Next week, we are going to be diving back into Gotham City with Batgirl. Barbara Gordon has been through a lot of stuff, and I mean a lot of stuff. We're going to be covering it all alongside a special spotlight and some additional reading to get you hyped up before you take the reins of the hero of Burnside in Gotham Knights later this month. So tune in next week for that. Same geek time, same geek channel. But for now, for the Geek Explained podcast, I've been Eric Azana. Thank you so much for listening. Stay safe, and we will see you next time.